What's up, Sycamore View? As you can see, I'm not with you today. Any Sunday, I'm not with you. I miss you. I want to give you a heads up on why you should bring friends and why you should extend some invitations to come to church the next two Sundays. On February 4th, I'm preaching a sermon as a part of our Wire for Connection series on um, betrayal, rejection, um, how trust has been broken. Because um, I, I know most of us know we're wired for connection. We're made for community with God and with people. But there are reasons that we sometimes struggle with that. So I want to speak a word of God into that. On February 11th, the last uh, sermon series, or the last sermon in this series, I want to preach a sermon on love, submission, and marriage. And I really look forward to bringing a word from God on that day. Today, my friend Paul Fisher, he moved here a few years ago, a couple of years ago from Pennsylvania. He has been a preacher in his past, has been a part of education, and now he works at Harding Academy. He is a man of God. You are going to hear a powerful word today, so please open your hearts, open your Bibles, and listen for a word from God. Good morning. Well, I, I told Josh, I said, usually the Spirit brings clarity at the most inopportune times, um, and so I always feel the pressure when, when church is fairly produced, and we're pretty low production compared to a lot of churches. But it's still fairly produced. You know, people are talking about the service and what's going to happen in it long before you think about getting up on Sunday morning. And, uh, and I always have trouble, even though I have something prepared and written down, sometimes it feels like it's so much me and not so much God providing direction all week long. And then I get to Sunday morning, and it's usually sometime during a few songs right before the lesson that I get a word that there's a direction that we should focus on, Right? So what I'm sharing right now comes directly from, I believe, uh, the Spirit of God speaking in the midst of it. We were singing about God being here, present in his fullness. Um, and we're singing the greatest commands. And, you know, that song isn't complete till everybody's in it, right? I mean, it's nice. Love one another. It's pretty nice. And then it's a little nicer when uh, whoever comes in next. Sopranos, altos, I don't know. I can't, I don't know until, unless I'm singing it. Then at the end, the tenors uh, come in, I think, or sopranos last. Anyhow, by the time you get all four in, I don't lead worship. By the time you get all four in, it's full, it's complete, right? And you want that part to keep going. And sometimes the song leader might do it twice, but there's a hesitation. They don't know if you're going to do it again. And then you might be off when you all start, right, Kip? So uh, sometimes we just sing it once because it's the safest route to go. Except for the poor sap in the back who starts singing it. You know, and everybody's like, what's wrong with him? They stop. Well, that struck me because later we're going to be talking about the church being the fullness of God, which is a profound statement that we would be the fullness of God in our context here. And yet, there's this other thing that struck me while we were singing. It didn't strike me randomly. God provided it. And that was Psalm chapter 11. I don't know if you recall... Uh, Certainly, if you grew up in fellowship of churches of Christ, you, you may recall singing this song quite a bit. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Anybody remember singing that? I don't know. If, I'm, I'm sure in the year and a half that we've been around here, we, we haven't sung that song. And I'm not going to fault anybody for it. It's not among one of my favorites necessarily. But I was thinking of it this morning because we were singing about the presence of God being here. And it comes from Psalm 11. It says, In the Lord I take refuge... How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. We are the temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. When I was a child, I, 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 we sang that song, and I was thinking like he was in, you know, the temple somewhere. And I knew I was supposed to be quiet, or I'd get something in my pressure point right here for my mom. Because the Lord is in his holy temple. And so that meant get quiet. The guy's going to preach. Or something's going to happen. We're all supposed to get quiet. But as we were singing just now, you've got this question. What happens when the enemy's got his bow bent against you and the foundations are being destroyed? What happens is the Lord is in his holy temple. And I think about the challenges we face as a church. I don't mean this specific congregation but just the church, universal, the challenges we face against evil in this world and the challenges that come against us from the enemy and our families and the question, what can we do when the foundations are being destroyed? The answer is the Lord in his fullness dwells in you. The Lord in his fullness dwells in his church. And Josh asked that I would share today about the beauty and necessity of the church. And he had been thinking about Acts chapter 2. And you might want to turn there. I'm not putting scriptures on the screen this morning. So you'll need to turn or tap. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 are really familiar to us, I think. Anyone who's grown up in church has read about the Jerusalem church and this great six verses that talk about their life together. So, after the day of Pentecost, you've got this growing church in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And if you were like me, you grew up with that passage, and from it you learned what are the elements of worship? What are the elements of the faithful church's life? What are we supposed to do? Did anybody learn that? From that passage? That's what I learned. This is what you're supposed to do. And if you look through it and you approach it that way for a pattern of what the church is supposed to do, a list of commands, if you will, or examples or necessary inferences. Does that sound familiar? Um, you would see study the word. You would see take communion. You would say, see perhaps collect an offering. We get more about that later because Paul's collecting it from some churches. And so we take some cues from there. Do corporate worship in some way, as we've been doing this morning. Do evangelism. The Lord was adding to their numbers. Pray and have fellowship. Be devoted to these things. And if you do those things, then you will be the church. 
And if you don't do those things, you might not be the church. In fact, it could be a litmus test where I could look and see if a church is doing all these things and I would know if it was really the church. Are you following me? That's not the purpose of this passage. It is clearly not the purpose of this passage. Luke writes Acts as volume 2, these two installments, Luke and Acts. And at the beginning of Luke, he says to the primary audience, a man named Theophilus, I'm writing you these things so that you can be sure of what you believe. And you read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and you see something miraculous happening. That's not how people live. That's not even how it was in the synagogue. They had everything in common. They had everything in common. They met together every day. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Is the dinner table always glad and sincere? Are meals always glad and sincere in human experience? This is a description of something supernatural happening. This is a testimony to the Spirit of God being at work in a group of people. And the reason Luke writes it is so that we would know that God does the miraculous in his church. It's so that Theophilus would say, my faith is real. Look at what happens. And then you read the rest of Acts and you see how the Spirit of God is orchestrating the story and doing miraculous things through the people of God. That's what Acts 2, 42 to 47 is about. It's not my list of chores. When I was growing up, we went to church even when we were traveling. I confess we don't do that as well in my family. And I'm not sure we're any better off for it. We're certainly not more spiritual because of it. But I do want to say that as I was a little guy sitting in the back seat, nobody ever told me this, but I believed that the reason we did it was so we wouldn't get in trouble. Anybody else feel that way? Don't miss communion especially. Now, you can leave after communion, right? So some elders sat in the back room somewhere and were crafty and said, let's put communion at the end, after the sermon. Then we'll get them because you can't miss that, right? Now, where did I get that? I don't want to miss communion. When we were looking for a church in Memphis, we weren't tied to Churches of Christ. I hope that doesn't bother anybody. But we were looking for any church that was passionately following Jesus and preaching the word. We wanted an Orthodox Christian church that seemed sincere, that loved and embraced the diversity of Memphis. We were looking for something authentic. Um, and we really weren't concerned about this punch list here. We felt there was fruit we could see. There was, there was other stuff that we could look for. But the church isn't a body that does something. It's not primarily about what you do. It's about who you are. The conference yesterday was about free to be, right? And so here we are as the church, and what the message for us is, you're free to be what I've made you to be. You don't have a list of chores to do. You have your identity to live out of as God's people. And so the message this morning, what I believe the Spirit is leading us into, is to take a look at this mosaic from the book of Ephesians. We're not going to camp out next to... We're going to move to Ephesians, and what I'm going to do is not so much preach to you, but give you a mosaic picture, which means I'm going to take all of these little pixels, these pieces that Paul writes about in Ephesians that says who we are as the church, and you're going to step back. And it has been my prayer 
that you would be so amazed, that you would be so enamored with the beauty of the church, that you would be overcome by the perfect perfection of the body of Christ, and that that would cause you to worship him, that he would receive glory today, that at the end of the service you would say, praise God for his grace that he would do something like this. The church exists for his glory. And it's right that he would be glorified. If you and I walked around and existed for our glory, that would be offensive. Right? And it troubles us as people sometimes that God is all about himself. If we were honest and we'd been in the faith for very long, or if we're examining the faith, we might say, why is he so hung up on himself? And the answer would be because he is love and he is truth and he is justice. He is everything you would want to be hung up on. Amen? And if love loves himself, if he loves himself and he's truth and love, then that means nothing but blessings for his creation. If he loves something other than himself, if he wants to bring glory to something other than who he is, that would be wicked. And so in these passages today, you're going to see God made much of. And it's going to make us feel really significant at the same time. I hope that makes sense to you as we go through these highlights from Ephesians. So, another way to approach that passage, Acts chapter 2, is for us to read it and say, praise God, what a miracle that he would do this among a group of people. The church is made to live out of what we've already been given, what we've already been made. And in the first half of Ephesians, what we see is Paul's not so much talking about what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do, but we see him talking about who we are. He tells the church who we are and what we've been given freely by the gospel of grace. And so if you want to be open to Ephesians, you'll be able to catch the verses that I'm speaking about, but we're not reading word for word from them. This is where you can hold me accountable and grab me afterwards and say, I think you messed that one up. But if you just keep your Bibles closed or don't open up on your phone, you won't know what I've, what I've done. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. We find out that we were chosen before creation to be holy and blameless children of God. It doesn't say that we were called out or we were chosen in order to have a chance at being holy and blameless. Or we might have a chance of being children of God. He says, we were called out as a church to be holy and blameless children. We were chosen for that purpose. It is our destiny. It is not in doubt. There is no question of it. The church will be holy and blameless. And then in verse 9, he says, He's made known to his church the mystery of his will, which was to unify all things under Christ. There is not another place in the world other than the church where the will of God, the mysterious will of God, is made known. Maybe in the Bible Belt we take for granted that everybody knows the will of God. But the will of God that everything, all of creation, would be brought united under the headship of Christ. That's news that is mysterious and that we can understand. It's like God allowed us into the conference room or into his council and said, here's my vision for the world. Now go live into it. The church gets God's vision there's no corporation, there's no nation, there's no body of people anywhere that, whose vision is the vision of the Almighty God. That's the church. And we're not bystanders in it. 
We're partners in his redemptive work in this world. Verse 12 of chapter 1 says, We're made for the praise of his glory. I don't know if you're passionate for God's name. I, I know we're not as passionate as we used to be for it. We don't protect it like we used to. We don't use it properly. A lot of the time it's used in vain, right? Even in the church. And so that's troubling to me. But what really gets me is when we make church about us and not about him. And this says we were made for his praise. We're made for his glory. It's pretty awesome to be the body of people that God shows off himself through. Because we are the reason he gets praise. And I know you're thinking like I am. I don't know. It seems like the church is the reason that he gets slandered. Is that true? No, Scripture says we're the reason he gets praise. It says we're made for that very purpose. This book has a high view of the church. And we're too busy apologizing for the church sometimes to recognize what God is doing through us. We need to be aware of where in the name of Christ people are doing wrong. And we need to correct it and we need to address it. But we need to celebrate what this says. We're made for the praise of his glory. My dad is better than your dad. We should be zealous for our father, right? We want people to be proud, to be enamored with the God that we serve. Then verses 15 to 22 says, he's praying for us, the Apostle Paul is, that we would be gifted some things by the Spirit. Do you think that prayer is answered? I think it's as good as done as soon as he prays it. And he says, we're gifted wisdom, revelation, and power from the Spirit. Is there any challenge this church could face in which we would be insufficient to meet that challenge if we're gifted with the wisdom, revelation, and power from the Spirit? Again, where else are you going to find that? Only in the church. And then, verse 23 of chapter 1, that we are together the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We're not the fullness of God alone. I don't know if, if I've got this right yet or not, but when you think about the variety of churches that are out there, if you've had the experience to worship with, to study with, to work alongside in our city, people from different kinds of churches, all under the banner of Christ, what you may find is what I think I'm finding, and that is that there are aspects of the kingdom of God that are emphasized in each of them, but none of them seem to be complete. And that would be true of this congregation as well. If I were just going to church for the experience, I'd probably pick a different one each week so that I could get a different flavor of the kingdom of God. I'm not saying everyone's got everything right in all of our congregations. I'm saying that if God in his fullness dwells in his people and we're divided such that there are aspects of the kingdom that are ignored in some of our fellowships, then the fullness of God isn't dwelling in the church like it can. If we were all together, what would we learn from one another of Christ? And so the call for unity that Jesus prayed about in John 17 becomes so important when you read a passage like this that says, this is where the fullness of God dwells. He who fills everything in every way dwells in us. Verse, verse 6 of chapter 2, and then chapter 1 of verse 21, there's this idea of us being seated. It's not an idea, it's a reality. 
but that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms above all authority, all power, all dominion, in every name. This is a group of people that's seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Do you feel that this morning? That you're seated in the heavenly realms? What does that mean, sitting in the heavenly realms with Jesus? What do we have? We have authority. We have authority to bind and to loosen in the spiritual realms. Which means the church doesn't get pushed around by evil. The church doesn't get pushed around by the world. And I don't mean that in a combatant way with our neighbors. I mean to say the unseen enemy that later in chapter 6, the apostle says is the real problem. We don't have to feel weak in the face of evil because we are the church of God. And the church of God is seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. When I say that and I see faces that are like expressionless, I go, I hope they're like me because I'm pretty stoic. Like, you won't see me lifting my hands too much unless I'm worshiping alone. I'm a little self-conscious. You can help me with that. But if you hear me when I'm alone out in the woods somewhere, you might see something different. Maybe you're that way, but when I look out and I say we're seated in the heavenly realms, you should all right now be ready to go and pick a fight with the enemy. And we do that in love, and the enemy's not a person. Chapter 2, verse 10, we're we're about two-thirds of the way through these. We're God's handiwork. I love this. We're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. What that means is that you're ready, you're operational right out of the box. Because you were created already as his handiwork. You're a new creation, we read elsewhere. And the work that you're to do is already prepared. It's all lined up by God. We are his handiwork, his craftsmanship. He creates us with purpose as his body. And we can keep postponing and postponing and postponing saying yes to him about different callings he has for us as his body. But he says, the work's already been prepared. I've already made you. You're my handiwork. Go. Do it. We're already equipped. And I think what the church is is like that new electronic gadget that has features that have yet to be discovered or used. My kids always get frustrated with me and my iPhone because I don't know half the stuff that I could know about it. And I'm happy. But, you know, I I had no idea that there were a bunch of apps kind of open in the background. And I discovered that, like, you double-click on that little circle at the bottom, and they all come up, and you can, like, swipe them all off of your... And so every time Arden grabs my phone, she's like, sorry, Arden, I called you out. Every time she swipes at least, she's like, oh, my goodness, look at all these apps you have open. I had no idea that they were hiding somewhere there in the background. And I'll take like 10 steps to do something and Elijah will be like, all you have to do is this. In a sense, I think if Christ were preaching the sermon this morning, he would say, church, you got like 48 features that you've not even learned about. Right? You haven't even read the instructions or you read them and then you're like, yeah, I'll try that someday. Dude, it does everything now. And this is what he's saying about the church. We've got all of these features now. We're his handiwork, and we've got all this work lined up for us to do that's a joy to do, and we're we're kind of like, eh, I'll learn about it later. And I'm not enamored with the iPhone, but the church, the fullness of God, says, you know, there's a big emphasis on on, uh, 
the Greeks, the Gentiles, and the Jews in the, in the early church, and bringing them together as one. And we can't really appreciate that kind of reconciliation. There's other kinds of reconciliation we can appreciate in our context here in Memphis especially. And it says that God's desire in chapter 2, 14 through 17 and 3, 6, he says this, is that he would make one new humanity. That's the language, one new humanity out of the two, one body. You think of Galatians 2, 20, all of us who are in Christ have died and the only thing left is Christ. And so when the church in Jerusalem had everything in common, he was talking about material goods. But the reason they could have everything in common was because they had all died and the life they lived was lived in Christ. It was through him. And so if we have Christ in common, what do we not have in common? That's everything. It's everything. It's why I can go to church of any kind in any part of this world. And if they're worshiping Christ... Truly worshiping Christ, we have everything in common. And I feel drawn to them, and, and they feel drawn to me. Have you experienced that? Folks, that's miraculous. Do you feel that way everywhere? We didn't live in the Bible Belt for the last 20 years. And it's, it's interesting culturally to sometimes share the things that we've learned about being in the Bible Belt versus being in the Philadelphia area. And I can tell you, here, it feels like everybody knows Jesus, but there is a, uh, there is a, a, a form of godliness that denies its power that is very real in the Bible Belt. It's real in Pennsylvania, too, but it's extraordinarily real here, and it lulls us into this thinking that somehow everybody's okay, and we're not in a war zone. But that's a tangent, and that'll keep us here a long time. Verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 2, we have access to the Father by the Spirit. And that access is immediate. It's constant. It's unconditional. It's not a universal human experience. This body of believers get together, and it asks for something. There's power in that. And we don't ask enough because we forget the kind of access that we have. Then verse 21 to 22 of chapter 2, it says we're a holy temple. We've covered that in our introduction. But there's a reverence that should exist, not like a quiet, stoic, like, you know, serious, puritanic kind of looking reverence, but there is a reverence of recognition that the presence of the Almighty God is here in His church. God has eternally purposed, chapter 3, verse 10, that we would make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So the church, and Paul says it that way. He said it was God's purpose that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be known by the unseen realm. That means the church, I don't understand how this works itself out, but we're instructing angels and demons about the manifold wisdom of God just by being the church. That's a pretty cosmic purpose we have. I don't even know how that's exactly done. But it should make us feel like we hold a special place of great privilege. Then in verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, We can approach God with freedom and confidence. You know, for the church, in the presence of God, there is zero threat. There is zero chance of rejection. There is zero judgment. And there's 100% chance that we'll be heard and we'll find our heart's desire. Because God is constantly molding his church's heart after his own. And the thing about... 
God's power in the life of the church. We've got three more items to point out here, and, and they kind of come to a crescendo. Chapter 3, verse 20, talks about God's power. And it's doing immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And I want you to realize, we often personalize all of these verses that I'm sharing But it is abundantly clear in the letter to the Ephesians that he is speaking about the church body. It's the church body. And yes, you and I are a part of it, but we live in a world and in a country especially that individualizes Christianity to the point where it's all about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. Well, it's not personal. And a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not a biblical expression. God's fullness doesn't dwell in you or me. It it dwells in the collective kingdom of God, the church, the body. And when I get to the point where I sit back in judgment about what the church is or isn't doing, and there's not an ounce of recognizing that I can't see the fullness of the kingdom, I'm in a bad place. It's making it about me. And I go there on a regular basis. But any kind of worship and lifestyle that finds its, its, its culmination in my satisfaction, my salvation, is not mature yet. When we talked about the church existing for God's glory, for his name to be praised, when we lose ourselves completely in his praise, then we know we begin to reach maturity. And it says that he can do more than we can ask or imagine, and that he is doing those things. Do we imagine very much? Do we? Do we think about what could be, what could happen if we just said yes to this opportunity or that opportunity? I told Sherry, I I don't have many stories today to share. I got a ton of them, but I'm at the center of them, and I want God to be at the center of them. I'm afraid because we don't know each other well yet that you might think I'm at the center of them, and so I'm not sharing them. But I'd love to sometime in another context, share with you how many times in the last, only the last 10 years, when I started to see this and I began to have a better vision that's God's vision for the church, did I start to step out and do things as if I was on the road with Jesus. And I found that when I said yes to him in those occasions, he caused a domino effect of power that was not anything I could have created. And I look back now and I go, all I did was say yes to that one thing, that one time. And look what he did. God is able to do immeasurably more than anything we would ask or imagine. But we're not imagining, and so often we're not asking. But if we realized that that's the potential for the church, we'd be pretty, I was going to say stoked this morning. Does that translate? Okay. Finally, we're on a mission to mature into the fullness of Christ. You know that promise in Romans 8.29 that I didn't know about till a few years ago? I knew Romans 8.28. How many of you know that one? Right? God works all things together for good. For those who love him are called according to his purpose. And then there's some scary theology right after that. And then right after that one, it says what that good is. Verse 29 says that we would be conformed to the likeness of his Son. You are predestined as a person and as a church to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. It is our destiny. If that's my destiny, how secure is my salvation? If that's our destiny as a church, 
Paul would write in the Corinthian letter, uh, 2 Corinthians, it was 3.18, he said, it's happening with ever-increasing glory that we're being transformed in the likeness of Christ. That means that the church today, and I think if you study church history, you'll see some of this is coming true. The church today is closer than the church of yesterday. So if you are feeling negative about the church, just stick around. Because we have a destiny. And it's God's promise. It is His work and He fulfills it. That we will be the fullness of Christ when we reach our maturity. What would it mean if the fullness of Christ left this building today? The fullness of Christ swept out to our destinations after here today. You know, Jesus told his disciples that it would be better if the Holy Spirit came than if he stayed. Jesus' presence in the flesh was, in a sense, finite. His presence in the Holy Spirit is pervasive in his church. We are the fullness of Christ on this planet. Is the church beautiful and necessary? Yeah. Yeah. Because as we go out from here and we each live our lives, which is really what the church is, we just are, we just be, and I know that sounds Eastern and mystical, but we just be who we are. Things happen. I had a fun interaction the other night with a man named Jeffrey. It was fun for me. Uh, Arden was with me after church, and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. Light. His friend is Light. It, if you've ever gotten off at the exit here on 40 or been to the Murphy Express or whatever, you might have met Jeffrey or Light or seen them. They have a, a huge tent. Jeffrey was describing it. It sounds like a mansion behind Ruby Tuesday. And uh, we, I, I met Jeffrey, and uh, I was in a hurry to get here. And, uh, and, and I wasn't, honestly, he was asking for money to get a hotel room. And so I wasn't really, I didn't have any cash. And uh, I didn't want to pay an ATM fee because it wasn't a Regents, right? Isn't this ridiculous? Um, just want you to let you know, I'm you. I mean, I'm assuming a lot about you. You may be way better than me. But, but these are the things that are going through my mind. Plus, another guy was getting ready to talk to him. So I was like, okay, cool. He's taken care of, right? But then, then I'm inside and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm feeling a little bit moved because I saw something in his eyes, right? And I went back out and I said, hey, if you're still looking for a hotel... Uh, I, I didn't tell him I was going to church. I felt like I didn't want to be a holy roller in that moment, right? I was going to invite him to come to church, and I've done that with homeless people before. And one time a guy came here in Memphis, picked him up at the Piggly Wiggly by Graceland. It's been a few years. Um, and uh, that's a story in and of itself. He likes the pretty ladies at church. But, but Jeffrey, uh, I came back to find him. I said, if you're here in an hour, I'll take you to a hotel. What I meant was, I'll get you a room, right? And uh, well, I found him at Taco Bell, because his friend Light told me where he was. I went over to Taco Bell, and I said, hey, are you ready? And he says, no, I don't, I don't have enough yet. I kind of thought that's how, that's how we are with God, right? So what I said to him earlier, I, I thought I communicated, I meant to say, I'll buy you the room. You don't have to beg anymore for the next hour. If you don't have what you need, you don't have a room, I'll just get you the room. And I feel like that's what God does with us. He says, I'm giving you everything by grace, and then he comes to us and says, are you ready? And we go, yeah, I don't have enough yet. I, I don't quite have everything I need yet. And I'm not certain God intended for Jeffrey to be a sermon illustration. I think he intends for him to be a relationship. And he has my business card. And I know where his tent is now. 
when you know where your neighbor lives, you can visit him, right? Not fix his problem, just visit him and treat him with dignity. But, but Jeffrey uh, looked at me, he said, oh, you're going to pay for it? And I said, yeah, I'm going to pay for it, let's go. So we go and we find the hotel, and, uh, and we had a great conversation in the lobby, uh, had a wonderful time getting to know just a little bit about each other. And you know, it made my night. Do you know why it made my night? I didn't fix any of his problems. But I liked him. I liked him. I made a friend. And he gave something to me. And when I gave him my card, it was an invitation to friendship. I said to him, well, you got a really nice tent. It's big. When you move, you might want a vehicle, right? I think he doesn't... I don't know what he likes. I don't know what he minds. I'm, I'm going to try to get to know him a little bit. But the point, my point is this. I don't know what God's going to do with that. I just said yes to him in the moment. I'm preparing my sermon, and I, I realize Jeffrey's an illustration of grace in which we've been told, you have it. I'm going to give you everything that you need. And we say, yeah, I don't have it yet, so I'm not ready to go, Lord. Well, there's a sermon illustration. I don't know what else God is doing in that. All I know was it was really easy in that moment to say yes, and it brought me great joy to bring glory to God. Because as I told him that he was important to God and that the room was a blessing from him, and I just asked that he give thanks to God for it, I knew that no matter whether he, I don't even know if he really is a believer. I don't know where he is yet. But I know that in that moment, my father was praised. And that's pretty much all that matters. We can't control all the outcomes. The church just has to be the church in the moments that he puts before us today, whether it's with each other or the people in our community. When that happens, God receives praise. That's what it says it's about. Prayer leaders, you can start making your way to your positions. And I want to give an invitation to everyone. You know, the church is the bride of Christ. And... Uh, does Jesus have bad taste in women? It's a strange question. But you get what I'm saying? Like when, when we don't esteem the church enough, that's the bride of Christ. And I can tell you, on my wedding day, if you'd had something bad to say about my bride, I'd have lost my religion probably, right? That's the sweetest thing I've said to Sherry in probably 10 years. And I said it, and I said it to you. Um, We're the bride of Christ. Yeah, that's kind of how Ephesians close in talking about who we are. And my invitation is this. If you've not adored the bride of Christ, if you're like me and you've spent more time being discontent, not seeing the glory of the church, this is an invitation for you to ask God to help you see the church's irrefutable beauty. And many of you haven't felt worthy of being a part of the body of Christ. And it's also an invitation to accept what is freely given to us. We're God's handiwork. We, we're, not a, we're not a list of chores. Anybody can be a member of the body of Christ. And if we just haven't had boldness to just say yes, this is a chance to ask God to make us bold. The fullness of Christ dwells in us as we go from this place today. And we have an opportunity to say yes and let that fullness explode on the Memphis scene, don't we? Starting in our homes and starting in this place. If there's anything along those lines or something else that you'd like prayer with, uh, Dewey's down here, and you can speak with him if you've got something you want to share with the whole congregation, uh, and otherwise see somebody else who can pray with you and receive a blessing.